You're listening to Coding Blocks, episode 14. Subscribe to us and leave us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, and more using your favorite podcasting app. And visit us at codingblocks.net where you can find show notes, examples, discussion, and more. And send your feedback, questions, and rants to comments at codingblocks.net. And follow us on Twitter at codingblocks. Or head over to www.codingblocks.net and you can find our other social links at the top of the page there. And with that, welcome to Coding Blocks. I'm Alan Underwood. I'm Joe Zach. And I'm Michael Outlaw. And welcome to part two. So, dear listener, as you heard in the last episode, uh, we ran a little long. I'm sorry, I I spoke too much. So, we decided to cut that up into two episodes, and this is the continuation of databases. But before we get to that, um, we do have a little bit of news. So, Michael and I actually went to a really cool um, event the other day, uh, Build Guild uh, in Atlanta, uh, which, how would you describe that, Michael? Uh, it was just an opportunity to meet up with other technology-minded people and just have conversations around different technologies. You know? At a place with beer, video games. Well, okay. And amazing, amazing French fries. <laughs> yeah, okay. Well, we could say that part, too. <laughs> but, but, but what was on the French fries? There was something special about yeah, these French I don't fries. Know. There is like some Uber hot sauce stuff on there. It's got to be sriracha. There's got to be some sort of spicy mayonnaise. There's and definitely fish. There's seaweed, and then yeah, the fish skin. There, yeah, there's stuff. Def- definitely that, that doesn't belong. sound tasty. It was like me. sushi yeah. on a French fry that was like really hot and spicy, and it looked like human skin. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but uh, yeah, but I don't no, know. it was really it was a really cool meetup though. I mean, it it was originally well, it, at least from like what I'd read about it, I had thought that it was gonna be like just strictly web-minded individual you know 100 but you know there are people that were there that were you know uh were from a server admin background you know there uh and then there were some that were from uh like a pm role type uh some from you know just uh desk you know desktop application uh type development so there there were you know you had you know all bases covered there there was even a recruiter who didn't try to get anyone's oh, I name about the recruiter. or recruit really? anybody, which is yeah, they were just really you know nice and normal. They yeah. just wanted to hang it out. Was, and it, he didn't beer. ask for any cards. He yep. didn't. He didn't pass out any cards. It was like I was like, wow, this yeah. is the first. That's really I bizarre. No, that means. But I think he was just there to hang out. Yeah. So was, what was the predominant topic though of the night? Like, was there any oh, there was any no one thing? I would say tales of woe. <laughs> it, oh really? It, it there was went, a lot of commiseration. Yeah. Yeah. In what regard? Like, you know, people talked about troubles they had with, you know, like maybe Mongo or... Um, Different pain points. If whatever hosting. whatever technology stack you're using, name it. Yep. Those pain points were discussed at one point. So that's um, pretty interesting because, I mean, that's fairly consistent then. Like, there's nobody that's just, you know, basking in the glow of any one particular technology or no? Definitely not. Okay. No, and, and, and like all the tech... There was a pretty widespread... You know, in in regards to like the different technologies used, different technology stacks, languages, whatnot, uh, you know, there is pretty much you know good representation there. Yeah, it's kind of like when you go to a meetup and you end up like hanging out afterwards and talking a little bit, or sometimes you go get drinks afterwards. It was basically that, but the whole time. So it was just really cool, like talking with people who have similar interests. Yeah. yeah. So it wasn't it wasn't like your you know your tor- your normal meetup where you know you might go to like listen to a presentation on something or where you're trying to learn something. This was, this was all about just, uh, you know, the more than networking part tech of talk, it. right? Yeah. Just, just meeting with other people, networking. I hated, I missed it. it. I was supposed to go and I, I wasn't able to. It was a good to. time. Yep. Awesome. 
Yeah. Uh, also, I just read this today. I haven't actually tried this yet, but um, we mentioned .peak a while back. It's a, a really nice free decompiler. And what I just read today is that it can function now as a, a symbol server with version 1.2, which means that you can take your DLL that you don't have the source code for. So, you know, maybe say some sort of game that uh, you can get on Steam and you can decompile it to get the code. And now instead of recompiling and trying to run that, you could just go ahead and run the .peak as a SQL, as a server symbol. So you can actually debug that application while it's running with the source code that you just obtained from the compiled code. That's just amazing. That is pretty amazing and kind of scary. Yep. Uh, your code is not safe. Yeah. And I, I imagine like, you know, uh, you know, 64-bit applications are a little bit weird, but 32, you can change stuff. You can change constants. You can tweak stuff, see what happens. That's awesome. Yeah. Uh, another thing I want to bring up that's actually about a month old now, but in case anybody had not heard of this, there is a site called Codespaces, and I believe it was. Uh, Wise. It was, yes. It was uh, www.codespaces.com. And it was like your GitHub or Bitbucket or anything like that, but it was a paid source code repository. So the reason I want to bring this up is not necessarily because it's new news, but because the way apparently that they were taken down is they let somebody into their AWS admin, not knowingly, but they didn't have it locked it down. They didn't have it locked down with multi-factor authentication or anything like that. So somebody was actually able to gain access to it and basically hit the delete button on everything they had. Well, I think I think there were a couple of takeaways from from their experience. One of them had to do with uh, you know security. So Huge. strong passwords, multi-factor authentication everywhere you know, you can. <clears throat> I know I'm a fan. Um, but but also too like from the from the developer point of view, uh, you know another personal takeaway from that though was. Uh, <sighs> You know, it's one thing to have a backup of your code, right? But you also got to think about like, well, what if that backup were to go down? So, you know, there is something to be said about having, uh, you know, some resiliency there across your backups. Yeah, because from right? what I understand, they were running completely on AWS. So they had backups, but their backups were from within their same AWS console. Yeah, so, but I mean like you, the developer, though, if, that's right. your, if Codespaces was your only place. Oh, yes, yes. Right? Then, you know, so, so, you know, they say the rule about backups is, you know, to have one on site and one off site, right? So, you know, if that's your off site backup, as long as you had another one on site, yeah. that might not be such a problem. But if you are only relying on a third party, party like, um, you know, whether it be, uh, Fog, uh, was it Frog Creek, um, or, or Code Spaces or somebody like that, right? Like if you're relying 100% on them, uh, you know, or God forbid, if something were to happen to like a GitHub, well, they're probably you know, they're pretty big, but you know what I mean. There, yeah, right. you are responsible for your data ultimately. So no matter who it is, how big they are, you know, it's it's your data. If it means something to you, you need to protect it. Yeah, and so that's interesting. I was thinking about from the opposite end. If you're the person creating a service like that, and you're trying to make backups, if you're doing it in AWS, you should probably have multiple different accounts, all with MFA, right? So that you're backing up across different zones and different accounts, or back up into another solution, whether it be an on-site, you know, set of drives or something. That like you really need to think about whatever you're doing, making sure that you're resilient, especially if you have paying customers. I mean, it's it's dangerous, but security is definitely a huge thing. So, I do on I think I said frog. I meant fog. Fog Creek, yeah. Uh, fog so, Creek. So that was just something I want to bring up. It's not necessarily, like I said, new news, but it's still news that people are feeling. So, yeah, you know, 
And also, actually, just for uh, just remembered this, I went to a really great uh, OWASP meetup that we have here in Atlanta, and they were actually talking about. Uh, I didn't even know this existed, but there's an OWASP mobile top ten, which uh, same thing like web applications that we talked about in episode four, except it's actually the top ten vulnerabilities found on mobile apps. And uh, there was a new top ten. Uh, sorry, there was a new number ten this year, which was um, mobile co- code hardening. So. Um, there are actually a, a number of exploits and things you can do if you can decompile the code and put it up in like a free app store. So um, if you you know partake in uh, of a, like a, a jailbroken phone and you go to free um, app stores because you want to get a hacked game or a free game or you know something else, then uh, there's a lot of bad stuff that you can do. And I got to see just a really great presentation. I'll have a, a link to that so you can kind of see if that's something you're interested in. So so I didn't get to attend, but. I'm curious though, uh, out of the uh, top flaws that talked about, they might not have been specific. They, maybe they weren't specific to operating system. But I was curious as to like, were the majority of them um, specific to any like Android or iOS versus you know? So um, the the actual OWASP project looks at both, but in this case, it actually dealt with the binary after it was packaged. So um, they looked at uh, the top hundred games, uh, or sorry, the top hundred paid apps in both the iOS and the main Google Android store, and they found that one hundred percent of the Android apps had been uh, decompiled and put up on these on a couple different um, free app stores, and it was like eighty six percent of the an- the iOS ones. So it was more common in Android. But uh, it it was well, uh, okay. Not much uh, better. What maybe, do you mean hacked? Yeah, or? maybe I, maybe I didn't say my question correctly because I wasn't referring specifically to the to the one about the. I think you said it was the tenth one on the list about the right. uh, hacked um, app store. It, you know, if you had a, a, a hacked device, but I meant like of all of the uh, things to be aware of in regards to mobile devices, were did did. The majority of them tend to swing to one particular operating system, mobile operating system, over the other one. From um, from what I gather, looking at the top ten, and I've only looked at the top ten, you know, briefly. I really just kind of focused on the last one at the meetup, but um, it looks to be really agnostic. So they they really don't um, talk much about one or the other. It's more about like kind of the general purposes or um, problems that both have. So like, you know, in OWASP, it's SQL injection, not like SQL injection in PHP or something specific. Right. Right. Hmm. Yep. Yeah, it's interesting because you hear so much about, uh, you know, as uh, how secure iOS is, as an example, right, you know, compared to to Android. And then, um, you know, this week, uh, no, last week, this week, there was the announcement from LastPass and one of their um, uh, vulnerabilities that they had mentioned was specific to uh, a feature implemented primarily for iOS, you know, which was the bookmarklet, bookmarklet, ugh. right? Say that bookmarklet feature. I and if you guys aren't listening to Security Now, you should check it out. It's an awesome podcast, and uh, it's just fantastic. It's it's long too, so that's like a, an hour, two hours of my week every week. <laughs> yeah, but it's worth it. Yeah, well spent. Yeah, so uh, I want to give a thanks to uh, Skinner MW. We got our our fifteenth five star review and write up in iTunes. So uh, thank you very much. Uh, we would love to have number 16 and 17, but in the meantime, I do want to give a thanks to the Skinner here. And and I can't help but wonder, like, is that like really a name or is this like a, you know, uh, a call back to like principal Skinner? Like, <laughs> you know, what's happening there? 
Yeah. Some cards. people just get lucky with uh, last names, as you well know. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Me? I would yeah. Have. Yeah, okay. Outlaw, man. Yeah. Like, yeah, outlaw and Apple. We always talk about Trent's last name. Right. It's uh, awesome. Tell it like it is, Jay-Z. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, Mr. Also, Frank Underwood. Right. Oh. <laughs> Jay, I'm so jealous. <laughs> but uh, We also got a really nice comment from um, Jim Basillo on www.cuttingblocks.net slash episode 12. And uh, he had some, that's one we talked about, kind of what we wanted to be when we grow up. And we talked a little bit about C Sharp versus Java. And he's just got a, um, like a, a really nice opinion on that. And uh, he's using Java and he's, he's done some .NET type stuff, but he's been using Spring Boot and is really liking it. And he's actually just got a really nice comment that you guys should go over to episode 12 and uh, read. And um, I'd like to hear your side of the opinion too. So Yeah, and, and we're going to link to that in the show notes as well as this next one. And so you can either go there or you can go to this episode and check it out. Uh, well, before you go on to the next one, though, I did want to say that I really did appreciate the tone, though, in in Jim's oh, absolutely. Uh, uh, comment there, because it wasn't, you know, so often, uh, unnecessarily so, uh, you know, th- there's this battle between, you know, languages, like like it matters. But, uh, you know, he, he really took the time and put in and put in some really well-worded really response. Post. Yeah, that, uh, you know. It really made you sit back and think, like, oh yeah, you know, th- those are some great points that he made there. Yeah, I mean, some of the points were like the link that he brought up that he loves in C sharp, but the Java eight now has lambdas. Like he really, he really did put a lot of time into this, and it's a fairly long write back. So again, it was well, it I was mean, an excellent write up. One, one of one of the, uh, I guess, like the the an overall premise to his his comment there though was that, you know, for him, one of the things that he didn't like about working in .NET, and maybe I'm, I'm restating this wrong, you tell me, but was that uh, he he felt that, um, you know, my, you, you were at, at the mercy of Microsoft. Whatever they dictated, right. that was the way it was going to go, right? And there, it wasn't like the community decided things. And that's what he liked about in the Java world is like, yeah, you might have a thousand different options to implement some logging framework, right? But the community as a whole will filter through those until eventually you get to, well, here's the top one or two, and you know, pretty much the community is going to standardize on this one. Right? Yeah, yeah, and basically and all the features, about it. yeah, all the features end up getting implemented into one or two that that everybody loves. So yeah, it, it was a really interesting take on that. I mean, but yeah, I mean, not. I guess like my uh, some summation of it though almost sounds like a disservice to Microsoft because I do think they take some feedback from the community as well, though. So they do, and I, I'd say like generally speaking, most people are pretty happy with a lot of the products that Microsoft puts out because they're pretty well baked, at least by the second or third revision, right? So, I again a very thoughtful post, and and I, I we all appreciate you taking the time to put it up there. Yep. Thanks. Yep. And then the uh, the next guy, Tron Anderson, he's actually left us feedback before, and always very good feedback. And this one was in regards to the recursive table or query stuff that we talked about in episode thirteen. And he gave a link that we'll include in the show notes to where he said he implemented a closure table given uh, this method. And unfortunately, none of us have actually read it. We just saw the uh, feedback a minute ago, but we're going to put that up there and, and we'll all be taking a read through it as well. So definitely appreciate that as well, Tron. Thanks. All right. So let's get into the basics then. Let's yep. talk about the types of joins. So, so what do we got? Um, my favorite is cross join. 
Is uh, <laughs> I never get to use it, and when I do, it just it's kind of cool. I want to show somebody like, hey, check it out. I actually needed a cross join. So a cross join for those of you out there is basically a join that has no predicate, and it creates a Cartesian product. When yep. would, when would you want to do something like this? Um, whenever I want everything in one table um, mixed with everything in another. So if I wanted like um, maybe all the different combinations of you know if I had like um, is it can we just say it, it's like doing two select like doing two select statements in one? No. Yeah, I don't know if I would say that. No, so uh, an example that I was thinking of is if you have 24 hours in a day and you need a table that is going to say, all right, Monday through or, or Sunday through Saturday, Perfect. I need Sunday to give me 1 through 24, but I don't want to have to create this table on the fly. I don't want to have to write the code to create this table. You can do a Cartesian product where you say, all right, select everything from this table, which is going to give you sa uh, Sunday through Saturday, so your seven records, and then you're going to do a, uh, a cross-join with a table that has the numbers 1 through 24. And so now you literally have uh, a record for each day of the week with each hour, right? Yep. So you say cross-join, and you order by day, order by hour, and boom. Yeah, now you have Monday, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, blah, blah, blah. Tuesday, yeah, but one, I'm two, saying three. like you're still you're you're the two tables. You're basically getting the results of the two tables in one combined set. Is what I meant. But you can't really do two selects because it's not just you know the days and one through twenty four. It's every day twenty four times. Yeah, yeah. You were basically saying, all right, okay, okay. Everything okay, in this enough. table has to fair go enough. to everything, every one of these records in this table. Yeah. So it's it's a Cartesian product. It's every possible combination from A to B. So that's what a cross join is. And they're they're fantastically fun, <laughs> and can bring your entire database server down. Oh, and so what happens if you cross join a table that has like the days of the week and a table that has nothing in it? Nada. I don't know if that's true. I, I'd have to write this, but I was wondering if like if I had my hour tables, there was no records in it, would it just show me Monday to you know Sunday through Saturday, or would it just be null? I really don't know. I don't think you get anything back. Yeah, I, I don't. I kind of feel like you would, because to me, like I always thought of um, cross product as being like the or cross join as being like you know the kind of granddaddy of all the other joins, and the rest of them just kind of deal with <laughs> with the the where clause or the on clauses. Uh, but now I don't know. I'm gonna have to Google this one while we're talking. Doggone it! I was actually gonna type it in, but I don't have a SQL Server up and running right now. All right, so so that's one. Uh, how about you, Michael? What's your favorite? I just do a normal join. I, I don't do anything crazy like that. Like you don't type I, enter or anything. No, like just rarely. Join? No, I just type in a plain join normally. Explicit is, is that, best. Is that bad? Oh come on. No, I, I actually I actually got into a, a heated debate with somebody about typing inner versus outer. Hmm. I don't care. Leave it off. I don't want to type as much. So, which way? So Michael's talking about an inner join. Yeah, I mean in. in like normally, if I need to do anything crazier than that, I'm already like, "Whoa, wait, what am I doing?" Oh, come on, let me rethink this. All right, we'll revisit. But what's I, an inner I, join I get probably, you? I probably don't even need to bother. So, so what's an inner join get you? Oh, great! I didn't know I was gonna be tested. Oh yeah, come on. So, so, <laughs> <laughs> well, that that's where you are providing a filter on it, so uh, uh, a predicate on it to to join one column's values specifically on the. Uh, column from one table specifically on the column from another table and you're only getting the results where those two match so it basically throws away all the records where there's not a, a right, direct right. match yep so that's your inner join 
And then the other type of join is an outer join. And you have your left outer joins and your right outer joins. And personally, I hate right outer joins. They do the same thing. But if you're mixing that in with your left joins, and you're really just going to confuse people. Yeah, just swap the tables around. Yeah, yeah, seriously. Make them all left joins. <laughs> well, actually, there's a third type of uh, outer join there. Across it's the full outer the joint. Full yes, outer I joint. was about to yes. bring that one up. And that's the one that I was talking about earlier where, uh, you know, if you've got one table of stuff and the other one doesn't, this one will bring it back. Across join will not. So in that example where you have no hours, but you do have the Saturday through Sunday, yep. you're going to get nothing from the cross join, but you're going to get the days for the full outer join. Good call. Yeah, so in the so to understand the full outer join better, let's talk about the the left join or the right join. On a left outer join, which I write left join because it's fairly obvious, but a lot of people like to write left outer. What that is is if you have records in the first table, um, let's say one, two, three, in the right table, let's just say that you only have one. If you say left uh, select star from A left join B on this column you're going to get all one two three back from the from the left table but in the right table because you only had the one in there you'll get one back where it meets with the one from the left table but the other two columns will be null or the other two rows will be null because there was no record that matched so a left join basically says give me everything in the left table in this expression and if it's not in this right table just leave it null but if it had a record go ahead and fill it in with the data that was there so that's your left join. The right join is the same exact thing except flip it around. It's going to grab everything from the right table where the, where your records exist. And then anything in the left table that didn't match is just going to leave null, but it will give you a back of record. And so the full outer join that, that uh, Joe just mentioned is kind of the combination of the two. <laughs> anything that's in the left table is going to return you back. If it's not in the right table, it'll give you a null value for that record. And it'll give you back everything in the right table and anything that was in the left table that didn't exist for it will give you a null value. So you get the full complement. Yeah. And uh, speaking of weird stuff, uh, what do you guys think about normal forms? I know what normalized means to me. You know, if I say that a table is normalized, I mean that I, it means to me that I, I basically um, got rid of anything that can be that would be duplicated in that table. So like an example would be if... Uh, you know, if we've got an employee table and a manager table and the manager's got an employee ID and employee as a manager ID, that would not be normalized. That's an example where these things have a, a reference we need to update in two places whenever you change that relationship. But I know there's like first normal, second normal, third normal forms, and that's where my knowledge just stops. I, oh, yeah. Yeah, it, that gets in, like <coughs> getting into those levels of normality for, for databases, it seems like it goes into things like data warehousing where where they break apart like a date-time field. And and so it gets kind of ridiculous when you get into first normal form. Like they'll break it apart from the hours to the minutes to the seconds. Those will be three different fields in, in a table. And so there's places for that. But I think third normal form is what most people work in, right? Right. Uh, where it, the, the quickest example I can think of is if you had something like a product and you have a product type column, right? If... In, in in newbie situations, when we all first started, we probably had, you know, this is a motherboard. And so in the type column, you would have motherboard listed for every single row, right? right one or zero, right? Yeah. So the way the, the you could either do that or you might have just typed in motherboard for the type. Where in a normal form, you would move the product type into its own table, give it an ID. 
So motherboard would be type one. And so then in that, in that product table itself for product type ID, you would have one for the motherboard, right? So that's when you start normalizing data. You're basically trying to get duplicates out of the table that aren't searchable duplicates. Yeah. If you, if you really want to uh, hurt your brain, you can go into Wikipedia and look at the database normalization there, and they go all the way down to like the sixth normal form. Wow, and too much. Yeah, beyond that, I was like, all right, you you, you lost me. I, I'm out. I'm done. And this is this is where like you know the guys that are really interested in data, in databases, you know, this is where like they're all into it. Versus the guys that are you know more interested in in coding aspect. That that's where you know we are. Is like okay, we're done. <laughs> Yeah, and there's a there's actually a guy uh, I follow on Twitter named um, well, his Twitter handle is SQL Chris S Q L K R I S, and he actually has been really open when I've had questions. So um, I, <laughs> he's let me bug him. So maybe he'll let him let you bug him too. Um, I'm kind of <laughs> nominating him here. So I'm sorry, SQL Chris. Well, he put himself out there. He's got a blog on database stuff. So <laughs> All right. Uh, now with that, I will say, a lot of people will say, "Oh, everything needs to be in in normalized form or whatever." Uh, that's true to a certain degree. If you're writing reports, it, it makes a lot of sense to create pre-compiled tables for reports. And those are not going to be normalized. You're bringing all the data in so that you can basically just spit it back out without doing a bunch of grouping and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, in that regard... Yeah, normal is definitely above my head. Well, when you get into like the sixth degree of separation, you know, I feel like Kevin Bacon is going to jump in. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, you know what? One thing I hate is uh, talking about motherboards. All of a sudden your data gets footloose. (laughs) (laughs) You'll see like, you know, an is motherboard column. And then right next to it, you'll see like a motherboard type next to it, right? In the column. And then the table will have stuff other than motherboards. So for like three quarters of those records, those motherboard is zero and the motherboard type is null. Right, and so you end up just getting this really junked up table, and that's, or it's an empty string in SQL Server. And generally speaking, that's bad design. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's actually really bad design. Like if the whole purpose of designing tables is you want you want to create a table that's almost always going to have a value in every single column, right? And that's when you know you've mostly gotten a normal form that you need to be in, at least from a transactional point of view. If you have this situation where is motherboard is is CPU, is memory, then you've probably designed it wrong and need to go back and take a look at that. Yeah, but refactoring databases is hard because you usually have to change the code around the same time. And if you've got an application that's up 24-7, then you got a problem. Yeah, refactoring a database is not easy at all. It, from the database perspective, it is. Right. But for all the applications that work with it. Yeah, you got to coordinate. Yeah, it can be It can be a real job. <laughs> you got to coordinate. <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, it almost begs the question of, uh, I mean, this wasn't really the the topic per se, but in regards to like abstracting the data away from your application, what's the best route to go there then so that those database changes won't have the impact on your code? Oh, that goes to application layers, right? Like your DAO and your... Yeah, be backwards compatible. Well, I mean, like as an example, um, I mean, this was many years ago. I was on one project in particular where... But wait, you're only 21, right? Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, I was in high school. <laughs> Thank you for mentioning that. Yes. Jerk. <laughs> uh, so, okay. So it wasn't that many years ago. Um, but we were on a project and uh, as a, as a design principle, 
I don't even know who made the decision, but it was decided that, uh, you know, access anything that you were going to do to the database, whether it be, uh, you know, any kind of CRUD operation, regardless of the type, it was going to be done through a stored procedure and only the stored procedure would know the intimate details of the database. So that's, that's one way that, uh, you know, the abstraction was dealt with in that regard. So if it came time to refactor your database as in the example that you, you brought up, right. Then, you know, as long as this, the store procedure takes the same inputs and returns the same output, you're good. Yeah. And that makes a lot of sense, actually. It's so annoying to work with, though. You update the table, you update the proc, you update the code, repeat. But you don't update the code. You don't update the code in that That regard. was the point. Well, if you add a column. Oh, uh, yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Well, okay. But, yeah, that's true. Yeah, I guess it's just one more step, not a big deal. But I will say the only place where that fails, and we've had discussions around this before, is if if your database or if if the data for your application depends on two sources of data, then that may not work. Mm-hmm. So it's pulling from one database and maybe another database somewhere else. You know, it's pulling from a, a an HR type thing, a PeopleSoft database or something, and then your application database. You can't put everything in the store proc unless you set up link servers and all kinds of stuff. But well, I mean, okay, so so. Excluding the the you know multiple database kind of weird scenarios, which then might multiple even server beg other questions like yeah. you know well maybe you shouldn't be doing those type of uh, <laughs> queries. Um, you know another way, just you know thinking off the top of my head, that you might be able to do this too to solve this abstraction layer would be through views, the use of views, so that only the views would know the true. Uh, if yeah. it has structure access. of the tables behind it, if it has access to the external server, yeah. Okay, well, again, it, you're bringing up that weird example. Yeah, yeah. Oh, um, but I will say that brings up another thing. Like you can join tables between databases on the same server, uh, and quite often people do that. So <sighs> whether it's this a good thing or not is not a, a good question. thing. Though, yeah, you should probably have schemas within the same database, but you can join tables from multiple databases. I mean, I can the drive a car with my feet. Doesn't mean that I should do it that way. Right. Well, I kind of do. I mean, I'm talking about the steering. <laughs> okay, fair enough. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, you know, actually, I'm um, just talking about database design made me um, think about something. Uh, we, you know, we didn't really talk about cardinality much, but there's this kind of this notion in database design of like one-to-one and one-to-many. And a one-to-one relationship would be something where like my employee table has a manager ID field. There can only be, an employee can only have one manager. And there's this notion of a one-to-many where like, a manager can be associated with multiple employees. So uh, what uh, I think is an interesting question is, what about one-to-one relationships where I've got a table and I've got three or four fields that are or, you know, maybe even one that uh, only applies to certain situations, like say that motherboard description. So to me, like, I kind of want to have a table that's like uh, product motherboard information or something, and it's got a product ID and the mother do- motherboard description in there. And it's associated to, with the product. So the product can only have one. And theoretically, I could put that column into the table. But I don't like to do that because to me, it's a separate logical entity. But I know a lot of people have different opinions on that. Yeah, that's interesting. That kind of came up. That was something I asked about at lunch the other day is that exact topic. So essentially what you're talking about is the equivalent of having a subclass in a programming language. So... You have a you have a product class, and then you have a motherboard, which is a subtype of the product class, right? So in SQL, you're talking about having a product table and then a subtype of motherboard, right? So you right. have a separate motherboard table. 
That yeah. one's interesting and kind of hard to I can't make any great arguments for or against it. Performance-wise, it would be awesome because you literally have a small subset of records. The good thing is you break it out into a separate table. You don't have a bunch of nulls in your product table for the motherboard type, right? Right, and you avoid these tables that have like 70 columns, which are probably harder to do other stuff with. Okay, but here's... So this is what gets back to my article I wrote where this is the exact direction I was thinking about was... Okay, so do you do that? Do you have a bunch of subtype tables, which, by the way, is going to be a royal pain in the butt because yep. you're going to have to manage it all through your application somehow. So if you create a new subtype, you're going to have to have it generate your create table scripts, manage that stuff so that if anything changes, your application needs to then be able to go in and modify the database stuff, generate your views, generate everything so that it knows how to get this data, right? Yep. So the other alternative is what I had in my article to where you create a uh, characteristic type table so that you have a product table and then you can assign as many attributes to it as you want. You can say it is a motherboard. All right. It is. And then I can add a description for this. And so you can create as many as you want. But now you're creating a bunch of rows to fill that need that you were talking about just for having a motherboard table. Yep. So it, we've described scenarios where you have one table that goes wide. With yep. a lot of columns. Yep. We've described scenarios where you have small. You, you have uh, in the in the example that you just gave, where you your select for the product might be a long list. Yep. Of attributes, so it goes it goes uh, long instead of wide. And number of rows. Uh, yeah. In the in regards to the number of rows, and then you have the other scenario, which is the Joe provided, which is short and uh, short and short. And separated, but but a lot of tables, a ton though, of tables, which seems like it would become unruly. I though. think that's kind of like what WebSphere and those things do, though, right? Like everything you do generates like its own set of tables to manage them. So, not exactly, not completely. No, okay. Hey, I've, no, I've heard. I, that... I, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. I wouldn't phrase. I wouldn't put WebSphere in that same light. <laughs> hey, I'm not certain, but the, it does really. So what he brought up was kind of the whole struggle I was having with with designing something was the what what Joe mentioned having a sub type table performance would be off the charts it would be fantastic because you're doing simple joins well, maintainability yeah, that, that and you would also have like you know there would be a small amount of data in those tables too right. but yeah you know as you were about to say I don't want to steal your thunder but no you're good maybe I will um, <laughs> yeah it just seems like it would be a nightmare to deal with that and like. As soon as a new product came out, well, it's slightly different. Yep. So does it is is that difference enough to warrant this new a table? A new table, right? Or or do you mix it in and just know like okay, that's the one special case, and because that's the danger. Because as soon as you introduce that, well, this is the one special case. It then there's up, always going to yeah. be a second. Okay, well, we'll have two special cases. Right. The slippery sequel slope. Yeah, and so yeah, I mean, I'm I'm really not a fan of of doing it that way. It's it's tough, but here's the downside to the way that I talked about. The characteristic way, if you do that, it is infinitely scalable as far as the kind of attributes you can add to a product. However, your query performance is going to take a major hit way on down the road when you have 10,000 products in your database, and each one of those products now has 20 attributes. So 10,000 times 20, you know, you're up into the, uh, what, 200,000 realm records, and that's not even that much. 
but that that's where it all kind of gets hairy. That is extremely flexible. But that's if you're trying to do you're trying to do a scenario where you want to get back every product with every one of its attributes, no, right? Not even that. That's where you, that's where your two hundred thousand came from. That. So let's say that you do some sort of query in your application to say, all right, give me all the products that are under this category. So now you got back, let's say, a thousand products, and each one of these has twenty records associated. You just grab back twenty thousand records. What really should have just been, you know, a thousand. You know what I'm saying? So you you either have to creatively do this through your application to where you can get back these attributes and, and form them some sort of way to where you're not dealing with twenty thousand records, versus, it, it, and again, that's why I wrote the article that I that I started putting together was. Man, it, it's real sweet, and I could write an interface quick, or I could write a user interface real quickly to deal with attributes. I don't think I could quickly write any kind of ad, or you user interface to do the the multiple table thing. Like oh, I, I don't man. even know how I do it and make it workable. So I don't know. It, it's a dangerous, dangerous one. True. Well, we talked about joins a little bit. Um, there are also some set operators, which are uh, kind of similar a little bit, except um, except different. So the one I was thinking about <laughs> right now is basically union. And I was thinking that's almost like, uh, you know, we talked about horizontal and vertical. It's it's kind of like vertically joining two data sets. So it actually like appends the rows from one into the other. Yep. But there's also union all. I'm not really sure the difference between union and union all. I just know that I always use union all. Okay, so here's the only difference between them. If you use union by itself, it does a distinct. If you do union all, if you have, it, it, let's say that you had Michael, Allen, and Joe, right? And then you had another table that I like had Michael, first. At, Allen, I like and Joe. First. There we go, yeah. So you union that table to another table, you're only going to get by it, Michael, Allen, and Joe. If you did a union all, you get Michael, Michael, Allen, Allen, Joe, Joe. So that that's the only difference. Union will get I'm rid of multiplied. <laughs> I wonder. Yeah. Where, I wonder which one is more performant. Oh, jeez, I wonder. Well, I would think that the one that's distinct because it's less stuff, right? But uh, you know, I don't know. No, actually, it depends. So here's the deal. Um, with union, if you have a very wide data set coming back, think about it like this: if you have 50 columns coming out of that, and you do a union on another 50 column. It's essentially doing a group by on every one of those columns. So it can be really expensive. Now, depending on what you're doing, the union all may not be as effective because you might be getting back, you know, a million records as opposed to a thousand if there were a bunch of, you know, duplicated data between the tables. So it depends on the situation. But typically, generally speaking, if you have a very wide data set with a lot of columns, the union is going to be less performant. Yeah, I just um, uh, looked up um, SQLAuthority.com, which is an awesome website for. I'm sure if you've done any sort of googling around SQL, you've been to this website, and you'll recognize the guy instantly. Oh my God, I was uh, picturing <laughs> it in my head. Yeah, you know, wait a minute, I've seen that guy's face, right? Is his name's Penalde. Is this the site that you're going to be referring to? And it is. Yeah, and uh, he actually uh, he's got a little thing here about union, union all, and he does say that union all is faster, which is kind of funny. We've actually talked about this problem before of like finding distinct elements in two different lists and. We kind of came up with a hacky way, or someone came up with a hacky way of uh, converting the list to a hash table and then looping through that as, as a way of getting the actual algorithm complexity down. But uh, it looks like it isn't doing that particular algorithm. So maybe there's a, you know efficiency patch we can submit to SQL Server here. <laughs> I doubt it. So a couple of other set operators are accept and intersect. And accept is kind of interesting. 
because what it does is it says, give me everything in table A except anything that shows up in table B. So if if you have, again, Michael, Alan, and Joe in there, and and Michael's the only one in table B, we're basically just going to give you back Alan and Joe because we say we don't want we don't want this in the data set if it was in both tables. Intersect says, okay, no, just give me everything that is in between the two. And this one's interesting because intersect is literally the same thing as joining on every single column. If you're going to write a join, essentially, it's you are basically saying, all right, everything that was in table A and has the exact same data in table B, give me back just those rows. So in the previous example where all three of us were in the uh, – in the first table and Michael's in the second table. If you did that intersect, you're only going to get Michael back because he was the only one that was in both. So those are ways of doing set based operations to get data back. But it does kind of make you want to beg the question of like, so, okay, let, let's, let's focus in on the intersect and the accept, right? Because these sound on the surface like operations that we're going back to the left join, right join type operation. So it kind of, it makes you want to beg the question like, wait a minute. Why am I not just sticking to the join syntax? Why am I bringing in something else? The only reason I can give you for that is you don't have to write all the join predicates. That's really it. So, and, and you're also, the other good thing is you're not having to say, okay, give me first name from table A only. Not, so if you did a select all and you did the join, you're going to get the duplicated columns in your data set in columns, right? So you'll have first name from table A and first name from table B. If you do intersect, you're just getting first name from the two tables that were uh, intersected together. You're just getting one column. And then the other thing is, let's say that you have first name, last name, age, whatever. If you're doing the join, you're going to have to say where A dot first name equal B dot first name and B dot last name or and A dot last name equal B dot last name and A dot age equal B dot age. If you do the intersect, you just say, hey, select first name, last name and age from table A, intersect, select first name, last name, age from table B. Done. It gives it back to you. So it, th your syntax gets a lot shorter and you're not having to write all the join predicates. That's it. Yeah, interesting. I never really thought about it that way, but uh, yeah, totally. Maybe that's why I've never written an accept or intercept. <laughs> intersect. But Alan does it in all of his CTEs. No, <laughs> I don't do those in CTEs. Uh, just kidding. All right, so then uh, let's talk about some aggregation. So, and this is awesome because this is going to come up in every single job interview you ever have <laughs> that deals with SQL. It really will. And it, yep. this is a... Here's your golden nugget for the day. Uh, so what's the difference between a uh, having an aware clause? <laughs> it's kind of hard to explain, isn't it, in words. But So when I think about having, uh, I know there's got to be a group by. And group by kind of aggregates my data. Um, like, how do, you even, how do you explain a group by? That's pretty much it. Like, the answer is a having has to be used with a group by. It happens but after the group, group by. group by doesn't have to be, doesn't have to include a having. doesn't have to have a having, but it's the only time you can use one is if there is a group by. Yeah, so I can tell you when I use the having, you know, if I say select star from sorted table or, you know, select some column and comma count star, I group by that column and then I say having count greater than one or two or yes, something like that. Having's like a where clause for the aggregation though. 
So yep. you're typically doing your wear on, like you said, count star greater than one or a uh, max something less than five. Who, who knows? You know, but yeah, that's all it is, is a wear clause using your aggregations. So what is the group by? Like, how do you explain what a group by does? Uh, a group by magic. <laughs> it's like, you know, when you need it, it's one of those things like. Like the final countdown starts playing and you see like, uh, you know, arrested development in the background. So Magic. I, I know for me, I think, you know, if I've got a table full of users and I want to know how many Johns I have in that table, then I would do group by first name. And that's going to give me, you know, a distinct list of all the names because I'm grouping by all the values. So it, it basically squashes all those Johns into one John. And then you do a comma and count star and it'll tell me how many records were squashed. So it'll tell me I had 77 Johns. Yep. That's a it. lot of bathrooms. So the group yeah. by is really just a way of aggregating information, right? I mean, that's it, and to to say that just flat out probably doesn't make a lot of sense, but you'll know it when you need it. Yeah, exactly. Hey, yeah. I mean, you if will you come need, across a situation where you want to do exactly this, and you'll remember this podcast, and you will do it. Yeah, if you just go back to the standard math, though, uh, your averages, your maxes, your mins, your uh, your counts that all those things can be accomplished with a group by. But you have to choose the columns that you want to do. So, like he said, if you want to count the number of Johns in there, cool, do that. If you want to if you want to find out who has the max salary in a table, you know, you just say select star. Uh, actually, let's say uh, maybe you wouldn't just want to do the table because you just did select max from the table, right? Mm-hmm. If you want to do it group by name, though, you know, you could you could possibly find out uh, which name has the max salary. So you know, you can't group by star. You I feel like you should be able to group by star. <laughs> I, mean, I know, I know, everyone's in here has been in a situation where they group by everything. Uh, well, no, I, no I, really the example sense, the example it? that I that I find more frustrating when I want to use the group by though is that like maybe I want to do a select star and then just say but group that star by yeah. this right. field. Yeah, and, and that's the scenario it. that it's like. Oh, but now I have to go and specify everything else before the group by works. Yeah. Yeah, if I'm joining table A to table B and I'm counting the records that are associated in table B, I should be able to say group by A dot star. Am I wrong? <laughs> it would make life a lot easier. Yep. Yeah, so the group by is just that. And your having is what we said, your wear clause for your aggregations. Well, the group returns it and it, it, it makes the select a, a smaller set of rows. Yeah, it, like you right. said, it squashes them and together. The having, the having is just a, a predicate on the grouping to filter those re, that result to a smaller set. By aggregations, yes. So if I can use group by to squash something, then uh, why use distinct? If I could say, you know, the equivalently, uh, th- this SQL statement is the same. Select distinct but, first name or select first name group by first name. They Those both do the same thing. However, if you wanted to get the count star... Then you, you have to do the group by. You can't. So use it's better distinct. to group. It's more flexible. It's more flexible. <laughs> less maintenance. <laughs> but but just to go back for a moment, the having though that you said you didn't have to use aggregation. That's what it's used for. So because the thing is, you can use a where clause also with your select. Okay. So okay. I see where you're saying like useful for, but but my point was that it doesn't have to be used for. Yeah, probably not have to be. But that's typically what you use it for. Your where clause will narrow down your data set, and you're having filters right. out your aggregations yeah so like so like uh if you want to find something where you know there's more than two rows that have or um 
Well, going back to going back to maybe your manager, if you want to find all managers that have more than five employees, mm-hmm. that's an example where like you know I've done a having where it was where I'm trying to find like things that have more than X number of something. So having count star greater than five. Yeah, I mean that's an example. But going back to what you said with the cat with the distinct and the group by, there are cases where you want to use count distinct, right? Right. So uh, if if you ever find yourself in a situation where you're like. Well, I want to know the total number of unique names in the database. As opposed to the total number of Johns, I want to know the total number of unique names. You would say count distinct F name, right? Yeah, it's funny. I, I think of uh, distinct being uh, like whenever I see Why distinct. Why you got F somebody's name? Man. That ain't nice. <laughs> whenever I see distinct in a query, I automatically think that they're covering up some sort of mistake. So a lot of times you'll see people write a query and they'll have a join that's messed up somewhere. And so when they're testing it, they'll see two rows come back when they expected one and like, well, that's the, I don't know what's going on. SQL's got a bug, and so they put a distinct on it, and it fixes it, quote-unquote. I'm pretty unquote. sure that's what that word's for, though. <laughs> Unfortunately, I think you're probably right on the money with that assessment. It's the one magical SQL keyword that yeah. fixes all your queries problems. Wait, wait, yeah, if, so whenever you see something weird, just put a distinct in there and move on. I had five rows, now I have one. It worked. Yeah. <laughs> all right, so. Magic. All right, the next thing. Oh, dude. One thing that drives me crazy is the different methods of get, getting things out of different databases. Like, by far, my favorite row number feature exists in Oracle. You just use row num. Every data set that comes back, it creates its own virtual column that's row num. So if you want to say, hey, give me all the rows, paging is a perfect example in applications, right? I want products 20 through 30. We're row num between 20 and 30. Done. You're done. You don't even think about it anymore. SQL Server since 2005 added the row number function, which essentially will give you the same type thing. It's not quite as pretty, but you can do some sweet stuff with it. My what are you doing with row num? Huh? You're doing some CTA stuff there, aren't you? No, no, no. no. CTA? <laughs> CTA. Uh, we're like on a whole other level. <laughs> Sorry, it's past 10, man. I, I just started yeah, going. It, Joe's about to fall out over there. Oh. Uh, um, no, no. So I, with Ronome and Oracle, it's just so easy. No, but he's talking like if you wanted to do paging there. Yeah, yeah. So so think about it. You're on Google, right? You're on page one. It gives you results one through ten. Well, you want to go to page two. You just say, hey, where results were, you know, or were Ronome uh, between 10 and 20 or 11 and 20. Let me say MySQL, you do like the limit 0, 500 or oh, limit my, 501. Actually, MySQL is disgusting. I found a site that actually showed the hacks for it. It, it actually made me want to cry. Yeah, you don't like, I like that. I always, get, I always get confused about which one's the star. Is it like star and how many to go, or is it start and end? I always got confused. No, no, that's to get back the numbers. But if you want the actual row number, so what you're describing works fine for getting oh, back right, rows, right. Um, you know, 2330. the row number? But if you want the row number to show it on the page, good luck, my friend. It was nasty. Mm. It actually, I think I closed the page immediately. I was afraid it was going to break my computer. Yeah, I would figure that out in code. It was bad. It was really bad. But I actually used to have um, a code a long time ago when I first started where I would actually, um, it was it dealt with MySQL or SQL Server. So, you know, it's my own custom ORM. And I would actually, if it, like, if it's MySQL, then do the limit. If it's SQL Server, do the top. <laughs> yeah, but, I mean, where where Alan was going with that, though, he, he didn't, I don't feel like he did it just because he started to go off when he just started to say, like, when SQL Server introduced the row number function so really what he was talking about is the ranking functions that were added yeah. in the sql server the windowed functions oh 
man, I like I feel like this is getting back into like, well, why am I doing intersects again? Like, because then you get into row number, you get into rank, you get into dense rank, quartile. It's like, wait a minute. Hey, I, we've made some magic happen with some dense rank and some row numbers. Yeah, but you know, like when when okay, so but so there's row number, there's rank, there's dense rank, and there's intile, right? Yep. <laughs> you definitely need to Google that every time you use it. Dude, I love me some dense rank. Yeah, you I mean, like do- seriously, we can put a fun- we can put a link in the show notes to this one though, because Microsoft has documentation specific, obviously for SQL Server, where they describe the purpose of the of the the four different ranking functions, and it's just gross. And and as Alan has mentioned, there have been some times where you know you need some of that magic. And so you sprinkle a little bit of that fairy dust on your code and then <laughs> magic happens and you're like, wow, thank you. Unicorns are flying everywhere. Like, please but, maybe, maybe make me never have to change this again. But but just know that you just sold your, your soul to that little troll underneath the bridge and he's waiting for you because you're going to have to go back across that bridge to get home. Yeah, if you ever have to look at it again, you will literally have to reread exactly what you did in the first place. Uh uh, so let's uh let's move on to the next one. What Varkar versus Mvarkar? <laughs> Who put that in there? <laughs> well, no, no, wait a minute. Now, if we were talking, hold on. So I want to go back to when you guys corrected me earlier, because if we were talking about the type, the data type, right? Would you say car or would you say char? I said car. 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 Really? Car. Hey, do All you right. say do you say character? No, no, hold on, hold on. Do you say character or character? Well, I, what I, does car stand for? I, I mean, that's the thing I got here in. <laughs> it's a char. I don't know. I just okay, whatever. Well, that backfired. <laughs> Moving right along. I was wondering where you're going with that because it didn't support anything you were trying to get. Well, no, I, because ah, forget it. <laughs> so I feel like I've actually looked this up a thousand times, and thank, thankfully Stack Overflow exists now, so you can kind of get the canonical answer. But I feel like every time I read it, the answer is basically like, "Well, you really should use NVarCar, but no one does." Uh, we're going so. back to the database topic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so NVarCar can store Unicode is basically the deal, which is important if you need it. But uh, it just seems like most applications I end up working with don't need it, which is you know kind of weird, I guess. Uh, I'm sticking to the USA or something, but yeah. If if you're working in English only, then Varkar is enough. America. But the reason why most people don't use Varkar is because it eats up twice the space. Right. So, yeah. But Varkar is already variable, so it's pretty good about space, right? (laughs) Well, but it depends on the character sets that you're going to be writing in there, though. So if you needed to support internationalization, you have to have Varkar. Then it's not. Up for discussion, right? But you every character, but every character stored, every character stored in an var car eats up twice the space, right? So, so yeah, I mean it's decent on space because it's variable, v- thus the V. But you know, if you don't need an var car, you shouldn't use it. And I think like var car is probably the most common uh, data type in databases. Yeah. Well, because we're all lazy and we don't want to type in one right. extra yeah, character. That, and that's oh, right. and you'll know it if you accidentally do car and uh, you end up with all this white space because it's oh. a padding. Yeah. And char? Yeah. Hmm. Only <laughs> use car if you're using one character. Uh, all right. Yeah, that might not be the right thing to say, but whatever. Uh, the next one we were going to talk about were goods as keys. Any thoughts? Yeah. 
I, I, it's really convenient. And if you've ever worked in a database in dev and a database in production, and you end up having some sort of status ID and in your code, you're like, if status ID equals five, you know, maybe you're being good pulling it from a, a config file. And then you go and you insert that data into production and lo and behold, that five is now an 11. So it's five on dev, 11 in production. And uh, it's just nasty. So it's a pain. And you don't really run into that problem when you would dealing with GUIDs. However, the problem with GUIDs is they don't sort. There's no sortable thing on them. So if you have your GUID as your key, you basically have your data in all kinds of random order. And so all your queries are way more expensive. Yeah, and it's it's also a large data type. What is it like, thirty two bits, or I don't even know. It's it's really big. Yeah, I think it's a sixteen. It, it's, right? Yeah, it's it's much bigger than an integer. Yeah, in they're case. they're pretty massive. Um, but there is a new feature in SQL Server that is a sequential GUID. Yeah, but what's kind of gro- what I don't like about that is that the sequential aspect of it makes it very predictable. So if you're trying to use a GUID, and you probably shouldn't be using a GUID as uh, you know for obscure reasons anyway, but it's uh, it's not really much better than you know just using integer as far as obscuring your data. And what I'm talking about when I say obscuring your data is if you've ever had an application where you've got like cookie dot user ID, and you go in there and you change that 13 to 111, now you're somebody else. So it just kind of grossed me when you can see numbers there because it's actually leaking information about your application. So if you know your user 1000 and you just signed up, then it's a pretty good indication that whatever you just signed up for has you know less than 1000 actual users. So but user- it also goes back to Joe's example with uh, you know 5 becoming 11. It wouldn't happen here cuz your GUID's also based off your machine information. So it's off the time code but it's also based off like I don't know if it's a machine name or what. So they'll well, be unique I mean, between systems. It depends on systems. how the data is getting in there, though. But I mean, in the example that he provided, though, he he was using from a development perspective, he was using one ID, and then he goes to the production, and it's now that that the ID for that row has changed. But that's because right? they were both integer auto incrementing. But if you had sequential GUIDs, so one that was created in Dev and one created in Prod, you wouldn't run into that issue. Because the one created in Prod will have its own unique signature on it, right? Which is bad because my GUID in Dev is FAA two B, and so one you in wouldn't Prod have that is... problem, right? Right. You'd know that they came from different systems, but you ro- you wouldn't run into that collision because the whole idea is like a lookup table, right? Like you have a product type, product type one over right. Here. But but the scenario that I'm describing though you, would be the problem because they're sequential GUIDs. So like if you were expecting this GUID at this one particular position that I'm not going to call out all 32 bits of, right. you know, it, you know, it, and you were expecting it to end in five, and now suddenly because that one already existed in your production database, now that one's an 11. Wouldn't happen that way, because what he's talking about is so. L- let's talk about like a lookup table of product types or something, right? You've got motherboards one, CPUs two. Okay, in production, people have an interface to be able to add and add rows to that table, right? So the problem he was talking about is you'd have a collision because development, you had your product types 1 through 10. Production, you have those as well, 1 through 10. So now your 1 through 10s don't match up. However, if you have sequential GUIDs, your GUID in development is going to be different than the GUID generated in production. It won't be like it's 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. You're going to have A, B, C, D in the development one and DEFG in the production one. Which is bad, because that means I have to have a config now that tells me different things for different... But but this is where I was saying, like it depends on how you initially loaded that production, develop, uh, production data, though. 
But anything created in production would be unique to production, and anything created in development would be unique if to you, development. If you exported that data straight out of dev it and wouldn't just dumped it straight into production. would not conflict with production. The IDs would match? On your initial dump, yes. Okay. And now, if you create now a go to Joe's scenario where now you're trying to create something, right? And there's some key that maybe for one reason or another, it doesn't, it's not there. Maybe you've wiped your, your dev database. That key is no longer there, right? But that sequential GUID is in the production database, right? That's the scenario that you were describing. No. Well, no, I was talking about a situation with um, basically auto identities where, yeah. you know, I created a new status and dev it's five on prod it's 11. And now, you know, I'm, my code's looking for five. Right. right. That's no. what I'm talking about, except as represented as a GUID instead of a number five. No, but that's what I'm saying. The GUID signatures will be different in the two environments. Dev will always be, you'll know that the dev ones came from dev and they will never be able to clash with the ones in production. Unless you Unless change your dev it depends on one. how the data got into dev. And that's uh, why I keep saying like, because you're saying like, if the, if the GUID was generated the first time, and, you know, a good that's generated in dev would never be generate would never generate the same one in production is what you're saying. Oh, you're trying to say. And I'm that saying that that's not the case. Let's say that the data was loaded, right? I don't know because it's sequential. Because there's because there's sequential. If you ever tried to have anything, if you ever had a, if you ever had a, a scenario where you had to insert something into it. the middle, right? I don't know if you can. Do that's that. where I'm saying the problem would become. I don't know if you can do that. It, well, it, that's maybe. actually a big problem with GUIDs is um, if you have them as a clustered index, which deals with basically how the, the data store on disk, and you're inserting records with new GUIDs, and these GUIDs are basically random numbers, then you're constantly shuffling the data around on disk in order to put those inserted values in if they're not sequential. If they're yeah. sequential, you know, you always just pop it on well, the Well, I wasn't even referring to it from a performance point of view, but I was just saying, like, you know, if you're trying to get, if you were trying, you can't put something in the middle. Because it, because the other ones are sequential, whereas in your dev example, it won't be ordered. It, it may have it. It might not have been the middle on that one at that point in time. Right. But you know. But you could turn your identity ID off and then insert it and then turn it back on. Well, right. And that's yeah, why I'm saying do it that. depends on how you got the data into that other system to begin with, right? Yeah. I don't know how that'd work. We'd have to do some testing on that. But yeah, it, it's generally speaking, I don't think GUIDs are great as your key column. Yeah, it's kind of weird. The one one thing that's nice is for you know distributed systems, um, or you're, you're really just in code too. Like theoretically, you can generate those GUIs in code and kind of throw them up there. Um, but you know, I, I just I don't trust it. I know that that's a you know 16 byte number. It's really huge. If I generate two GUIs in a row, those are supposed to be different. But I just, I just can't trust it. That drives me crazy. Yeah. All right, so we beat that one up. Uh, parameterized <laughs> <laughs> parameterized queries. Uh, this Do is it. something important for pretty much anybody. If you're writing application code, you need to use parameterized queries, period. End of story. Or you're calling procs, one of the two. But the whole reason is, is one, security, and two is speed. Security. In a lot of cases, uh, RDBMSs will cache query plans, and they do better with a parameterized query. I think newer databases have actually done a better job of, of uh, doing performance on non-parameterized queries, but a parameterized query basically says that you're not going to be able to hack your database all that easily. So uh, you definitely want to use that. We also spoke about that in the OWASP episode. So That was episode four. Yep. And that's codingblocks.net slash episode four. Yeah. So go check that one out, but you should absolutely be using that. Yep. And we, you know, we really talked a lot about um, kind of 
SQL tips for developers. But uh, coming from the other way around, uh, actually, person we mentioned earlier, SQL Chris asked us for any sort of coding tips for a SQL guy. And so we started, you know, talking and thinking about that a little bit. And, uh, you know, that, I think that's a really good question. So if you are, you know, if your DBA friend asks you what they should try doing or learning about in order to get started with coding, then you know, what should they do? Yeah, I don't have an answer for what they should do. Yeah, I, I thought about a couple different things. Um, You know, at first it was really kind of weird. I started thinking about PHP just because it's so good at popping data out of a database and throwing it onto a web page. So if you just want to kind of create a quick um, data-based application, then that's a good way to do it. And you get to leverage your SQL knowledge and it probably will be, you know feel somewhat natural to you, which I never thought I would say about PHP. Well, <laughs> when, I, when I originally um, saw the question, though, I didn't... Usually, and I don't know if this is the case for SQL Chris, but I know for a lot of DBAs that I've known in the past, because of the nature of their job, especially from like when they walk in day one on a brand new project um, and, and they need to get you know the customer's data into a brand new database, then quite often um, languages like Perl are their best friend that they you yeah. know, have known well because they need to manipulate text and, you know, put it and take it from one format, put it into another in order to get it into that database the you know first time. That's an interesting take. Yeah, it's funny. When I'm importing data in SQL Server now, a lot of times I'll use Sublime because it's got a really nice regex support. And so I'll kind of throw the data in there and then I'll run my little regex to clean it up a bit before I throw it in the database. But now with that said, though, you know, and this being 2014, would you recommend Perl to somebody? It's like, uh, well, I actually replied to him on this, and I said, if I were going to try and do this as as a SQL guy, I think the lowest barrier to entry goes back to what we mentioned on our last episode: do some JavaScript. So I I mentioned uh, look up a Node tutorial, so that, because they're real easy to get started with, and then without having to know a lot about language specifics, library like you know. You don't have to know about system libraries and all the all the goodies that .NET or Java or any of those give you. You basically have a fairly simple programming language out of the box that that you can get started with. And Node's really powerful. So that was kind of my thing was if you want to yeah. get started with the lowest barrier to entry, probably something like a Node.js would get you going. Yeah, and there's a there's a couple. I can't speak to like how how well they are, but well, there's some SQL builders uh, for JavaScript, but. Hmm. Um. Yeah, I mean, at least with Perl, though, I was thinking like you could actually not, you know, you could take something that you know well, like a right. database, and you could actually interact with it right. programmatically. Yeah. Right. Yeah, it, it's an interesting question. I mean, crossing those paradigms is a lot harder for SQL guys coming to programming versus programming coming to SQL. I've I, I've noticed like most SQL guys don't really want to play with coding <laughs> that I've seen. So, I don't understand that. Yeah, so uh, uh, a real quick break here. Uh, again, if you guys are listening, you're enjoying the show, please do go leave us a review on iTunes. Uh, you know, click the five stars, leave us a line, tell us how you think we're doing. And yeah, we definitely appreciate the, the written reviews. If you take the time to write us that review, we greatly appreciate it. And uh, we'll even you know do you the favor of uh, you know, giving you a shout out on the show. Feel free to drop us a line and hit us up at uh, comments at codingblocks.net and uh, tell us your preferred form of shout out. Yep. 
And I'll even record Michael doing the happy dance if if you leave a really nice review. <laughs> <laughs> we will send you a great gif. Yeah, yeah, a gif. <laughs> I, I I'm going to go ahead and go on record as is not you know accepting that. <laughs> so like that if, if if that does happen, if you do get that, just know that that was videoed against my will. <laughs> I did not sign up for that. There was no consent given. Oh, that's awesome. Awesome. All right, so we're, we're nearing the end here, but I think we would be very remiss if we did not speak about performance of of sequel. Yes. So. The answer is yes. Yes. You should have performance. You should have performance. And how do you how do you have that performance exactly in sequel? Oh, we're going to get complicated. Do you just it. do you just get to write queries and be happy? Is that it? Yeah, you, whatever entity spits out, that's generally <laughs> it's in, tough because like sequel ignore is, the man behind the curtain. <laughs> that's not a good answer. Well, it's like a SQL, you know, SQL Server at least is is not really known for being very scalable. So, uh, I, I think you know the more you can get out of the database, uh, as in like you're not going to the database for it, then probably the better. Like doing stuff like caching or. Um, you know, trying to stick it in more appropriate data stores, like we talked about, like solar or something like that for certain types of data, then that's how I usually approach performance. But I know that's not exactly what you're going for. I've never heard that it's not that scalable as far as, as, far as performance. I know it doesn't scale horizontally as well. But well, that's what I mean, yeah. yeah. I mean, vertically, it only goes so far, right? Yeah, but it's it's actually a pretty fast thing. But So in order to make your queries faster, there's this little thing called indexes that you need to be aware of. And pretty much every database on the planet supports them in one form or another, at least relational databases. And at least in SQL Server, I haven't investigated all the different uh, database servers, but you've got you've got clustered indexes and you have non-clustered indexes. And this is also probably one of those interview questions a lot of people get hit with. And even the people asking the questions a lot of times have no idea what they're asking. Um, a clustered index basically stores the data sorted in the table for you. So if you create a clustered index on a table and you can only have one in SQL Server, then you create what's called a clustered table. And that basically means the data will be sorted by the, the columns that you chose. So if you have an employee ID, then if you select out of that table, it's going to, if, or when those rows are written to the database, it's actually going to put them in order. So one, two, three, four, five are going to be on the hard disk in that order. Now, the interesting thing about this that um, probably a lot of people don't know, if you actually have a clustered index on a SQL Server table, if you do a select from that table, it automatically comes out ordered for you because that's how it's pulling it off the disk. That's how it's stored on the disk. So you'll get one, two, three, four, five for your employee IDs. So then that takes you to non-clustered indexes. And essentially what this is, is your data is stored, or, or a non-clustered table, if you have a table that does not have a clustered index on it, your data is stored in a heap. And it, it typically stores it in order, but it's not guaranteed. So it'll write it as it comes in, in whatever order it came in, but you're not guaranteed that you're going to have employee 1, 2, 3, 4, 5 in that order stored on the disk. It could do one, two, three, and then it's going to find some space for number 50 right in between those, and that's where it's going to squeeze it. So that is a non-clustered index table, which means it's a non-clustered table. Uh, it seems to me like the clustered index is almost always the primary key. 
Yes, typically speaking. And the only example I can think of where it's not is if you've got a primary index or uh, yeah, sorry, pri- primary key that's a unique identifier, and you don't want that to be clustered because of you know it's storing it in order on the disk and having to reshuffle all of that. Now here's here's one of the situations where talking about the GUIDs we did earlier is a key really stinks. If you make a GUID a clustered index on your on your database, it's trying to sort garbage. Like your GUID by its very definition is random for the most part. And so it's now having to figure out where to sort this stuff and it's really not a meaningful sort. So when you do that, you're creating a lot of overhead on every insert into the database because it's having to resort that data in the table and shuffle records around. So if you are using a GUID as as your key in your table, you probably should not create a clustered index on that. Now, here here's when you know that you're ready for a beer. <laughs> okay, th- this is the beer test. When when your when your queries involve you having to create your own index on the fly for results in a temp table. Right. You, my friend, have earned a beer. And we've all <laughs> been there. Or we we have. Well, yeah. I mean, there's times where it happens where, like, you know, because we mentioned the, t- the CTEs earlier, and that's if you're going to do it in memory. But, you know, there's also times where you want to be able to reuse that result over and over and over. So then you would write it out to disk in a temp table. But, you know, that that's often the case where you would want to create that index on the fly, uh, you know, as part of your overall set of queries uh, in order to, for you to get to the end result. Yeah, and, and they can be extremely useful, even in that temporary situation. I mean, they could mean the difference between pulling back your records in zero seconds and in five minutes, right? I mean, they can be extremely helpful. Yeah, indexes are huge. And and so getting into a non-clustered index, essentially that is not stored in place in the table. That's stored outside in another location, but it points, if you have a clustered index on the table, then that actually, that location gets stored in each one of the indexes. If you don't have a clustered index on there, then it's just going to try and point to to the actual location of the data in the tables. And non-clustered indexes can be incredibly fast. You don't necessarily need a, a clustered index in every situation to get to that data. But a non-clustered index is your way of not sorting data in the table, but being able to point to it uh, in a sorted manner outside the table. And so it's a fast lookup. So what's a filtered index? Yeah, these are, I don't know if these are, yeah, these are new in 2008. So these were, these are kind of cool. So in, in the olden days, when you created an index, you indexed every record in the table. In a filtered index, if you know you're only going to be searching for a certain subset of data, you can create what's called a filtered index that will only index that certain subset of data. So if you have a table that has 80 million records in it, but you know you're only ever going to be hitting these 1 million records, you create a predicate on the index create, and so only those 1 million records will be indexed. Okay, so maybe I could like index only the uh, the records created in the last year or something like exactly. that. Exactly. And so when, you, when you're using your where clause to pull all the records within the last year, it's going to hit only that subset of data. So your, record, your, your speed is going to be way faster. Uh, so that's, that's pretty interesting. Another thing, uh, here, here's, the, here's the downside. You can create a ton of indexes and you don't even know if they work, right? I mean, 
generally speaking, I'd say a lot of people who learn about indexes are like, oh, well, I search on this field. I'm going to create an index for that. Yeah, why don't you just index every field? Right. So there's a couple things to know about indexes is the the query optimizer, at least in SQL Server, will use one per table. So creating a separate index for every field in the table is not going to help you, generally speaking. If you know that you are searching a an employee table by first name and last name all the time, then you'll create a composite index on that that includes both first name and last name. And then when you search, it can index very quickly and res return back what you need. Well, the only way to really know whether or not that's working for you is obviously it's going to come back faster. But in SQL Server and the management studio, you can look at what's called the execution plan. And if you see an index seek, then you know your index is working. If you see an index scan, you're, you're basically doing a table scan, except on a smaller, on a narrower uh, table, essentially. Uh, I'm trying to think if there's, I don't know, anything. It, you Just creating indexes blindly is not going to help you. You need to know what your search, your queries are what you use your where clauses on, what you use your join predicates on, and that's typically what you're going to create your indexes based off of. Yeah, and there is overhead associated with indexes, so it's really fast for pulling stuff out when you use that index, but every time you insert, you've got to kind of pull out that data and throw it in a heap. Yeah. What about fill factors? I have seen that show. <laughs> <laughs> they so they the you eat all the gross the stuff. Yeah. yeah, that's awesome. So the fill factor, I, I think the default in SQL Server when you're creating an index is 80. But all that means is, it's is it going to reserve any space for updates to this data? If you make a fill factor of 0 or 100, it's the same thing. It basically says, no, use up all the space on the row. So generally speaking, if this is data that's not being updated, if this is data in a report table, let's say, that really never gets changed, you can make the fill factor 100 or 0 on the index, and that means that you're not going to waste any space. That index is going to be as efficient and lean as possible. If you make it a fear, uh, fill factor, a fear factor of 80. Yeah, I got you, yeah, right? You I got you. Showing you, your age there, outlaw. Yeah. Wait, what? <laughs> So if you make it a fill factor of 80, that means basically leave 20% of room on this. So if you update data in the table, if your first name all of a sudden got bigger for some reason, then it has space to update that index and point it back to that record without having to rearrange those records in the table like or the index wherever it's being stored. So if you are changing data a lot and you have indexes on the table, you probably want to leave that fill factor open for a little bit of wiggle room. If it's a reporting table to where that data never changes, just zero it or 100 it, and you're good to go. All right, and I think we have pretty much just exhausted a lot of information on databases here. All right, so resources we like for, for this particular episode. I've actually got a few that I want to mention. I'm getting into AngularJS development a little bit uh, late to the game, but, you know, I figure they've had time to perfect things yeah, now. Yeah, I mean, it's been four weeks. So yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I, I figure they've had time to really uh, perfect it, and, and there is some interesting stuff here. So the first one that I want to mention that I've tweeted out, actually, through Coding Blocks and also mine, is AngularJS. There's a guy, uh, oh, it is Art and Logic. 
and he had three articles that he wrote for things that he's been doing wrong a lot in angular js and the ways to fix it all the way from file structures to how where to put your logic and how to separate out your controller information and not mix in doms so excellent excellent articles so i highly recommend those i'll have links in the show notes another one is angular dash app this is literally not a tutorial this is a baked app that is put up on github that if you want to take a look at how it should be structured and and how authorization and authentication happens this application is there you can actually go through it you can compile it you have to use node uh, node.js karma and uh, bower and I had the thing up and running in no time. Like it probably took me 15 or 20 minutes to have the whole thing running. So definitely a nice resource if you really want to see how it should be laid out in, in an app that's running both server and client side code. It's not a tutorial. It's just code there. And then the, uh, the third one that I want to bring up is there was an excellent article on medium.com and I'll leave a link to this as well, but it was, getting just strictly into the authentication and the authorization part of AngularJS because with a lot of the UI layers now for the web, most of your code is exposed because it's all JavaScript. And with tools like Google Chrome, Firefox's, Firebug, even IE's debug tools, you can go in and manipulate every little piece of JavaScript that exists. So with that, it's very important that now more than ever, you also do server-side authentication and authorization on pretty much every call that's coming through. And this guy laid it out beautifully. The only thing is he doesn't describe all the files like where, where the code goes, but I'm assuming if you're comfortable with Angular and you're trying to get a foot up on this kind of stuff, this will be a great article for you. So I'll leave a link to that as well. And I wanted to mention a site called usetheindexluke.com. And I actually thought this was a blog. You didn't say it right. Hey, use the index, Luke. <laughs> Luke, use the index, Luke. And it's got a great little graphic on the site, too. But uh, I actually thought this was a blog until recently. And um, it, it turns out it's actually just a book. So, oh, uh, and I'm sorry. I, I have a correction. It, they actually have a blog, too, that I've not been subscribed to. So it looks like I, I messed something up there. But anyway... If you go to useindexloop.com, it is an online book, and there's also a, like a paper or digital version you can buy. It's in English, French, French, uh, <laughs> Dutch, uh, a few other languages, and uh, it's just got really nice in-depth information on SQL in general. So it actually has little kind of like takeouts there for specific platforms like Oracle or SQL Server, but... It's got chapters on indexes, on joins, and it's just really in-depth. But it's also concise information, so there's not a lot of fluff here. It's just great information. There's a little character there who looks like a cross between E.T. and Yoda and yeah. Taco. It's not It's not a graphic you're going to forget ever. <laughs> it's definitely very interesting. <laughs> Why is the Taco holding a lightsaber? Uh-huh. <laughs> there's a Reddit that's pretty much dedicated to uh, tacos and lifesavers, I'm sure. But also, there's a, this really cool. <laughs> there's about to be if there isn't already. <laughs> there's a three minute test that you can take um, uh, that'll kind of let you know, you know, how you stand on SQL performance. And it's got some some tough questions, but you choose your your database, you know, MySQL, Oracle, SQL Server, and it's got some pretty tough questions. And it really, it took me to the mat. So you guys should go there and try it. We'll have a link in the show notes. Very cool. I think Alan's 
taking it right now. I was looking. Yeah, I actually clicked start. Sorry about that. All right, I'm back. Uh, so <laughs> <laughs> the uh, the there was one funny that Outlaw found this week that I don't even know why I'm talking about it because he should get credit for this. Uh, there's uh, HTML nine responsive boilerstrapjs.com. If you really want to take a break and you're over all these bootstraps and boilerplates and and angulars well, and embers and all that basically if i could read from the summary of it i think this would uh, please do you know describe it best in regards to html9 responsive boiler strap js <laughs> it's a flexible dependency free lightweight device agnostic modular baked in component framework mvc library shoelace strap to help you kickstart your responsive css based app architecture backbone kitchen sink tweety birds so <laughs> that's straight from the site. That's exactly what I was looking for. Yeah, <laughs> I think I think like like th- here this this is hilarious though. I mean it, it's it's available on GitHub. You can download it if you need to. And uh, but like of of the frequently asked questions, <laughs> my absolute favorite was in regards to like how do you install it? And uh, you know you you just attack clone the git the grit repo. <laughs> Push merge, then Ruby Gem, the lymph node, JS, Shawana, on a module, and presto. <laughs> it's it's a gold mine, especially if you've been digging through trying to find the perfect responsive stuff. It's a nice break. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. So with that, let's get into the tips of the week. Yeah, and uh, I got a doozy this time. So just discovered this. Right, so you go last. Oh. Uh, okay. <laughs> Oh, come on, I'm dying here. I am chomping at the bit to get, to get this right. out there. All right, so the Alan, you had this. something. <laughs> what was yours, Alan? Uh, no, no, I, I got to hear this one because I'm actually more excited about his than I am mine. Ah, oh, right, <laughs> fine. Uh, I get two tips of the week for this one. It's so good. Uh, I'll, I'll use it next episode too. But uh, sequel fiddle. Why not, Alan? Has <laughs> hey, ease up off me. <laughs> so you've probably seen JS Fiddle around there. It's a nice little. Uh, it's a website that will let you send JavaScript to other people, like if they're asking a question. It's a nice example they, that's actually working, and they can run it and see what it does. They can mess with it. You can send it to other people. SQL Fiddle is the same thing. So on one side, you have an area where you create your schema. You can create tables in your database server of your choice. You can insert some data, and then on the right, you have your query. So like if someone wants to see an example of maybe that, um, like the tree structure that I was talking about with the... Uh, zero to 100 and you know whatever with the managers and employees you could actually write that out in a sql fiddle save it and send it to someone they could run queries kind of experiment with it and it's just really cool yeah i i about lost my mind when you showed this to me because my first question was like well what database servers use he's like well my sql and then you go up there there's a drop down and you can choose from like i don't know 12 different servers so like postgres mysql sql server oracle it's fantastic yeah, it's really cool. And so, like, if you've got a little SQL script, uh, you can probably do this a lot easier. You can, uh, you know, test your updates and stuff right here easier than you can create a backup, run it, see if it worked, restore the backup, try it again. If you've got something weird you need to do. Yeah, that that one's awesome. So, I guess on to mine. So, you don't test your query in production? <laughs> <laughs> what? Who doesn't do that? Oh, uh uh, I'm sure you've been in a situation where you've, like, nuked some data in your dev database and you're like, oh, great. I gotta figure out how to fill this back in so I can try it again. Yeah, not today. <laughs> not not before lunch. That's why you should always write your where clauses first. Yes. Oh man, we've all been there. All right. So uh, my tip of the week are object initializers in C sharp. 
Uh, many of you will know what these are. Those who don't may end up loving this. So an object initializer is when you go to, rather than calling a constructor, so if you have, if you have a class that has a ton of properties, the old school way of doing that is for every permutation that you can think of for, for creating this particular an instance of this class, you would create a ton of different constructors. Well, nowadays in C Sharp, you don't really need to do that. You create a default constructor, and it has to be public. If it's not public, this will fail. But you create a default destructor or constructor that will have um, wow. some piece of... Destructor, uh, those are the days. Yeah, that's rough. Uh, some pieces of implementation in there that you need to have happen. And then when you call your initializer, it's basically going to be a new instance of the class, and you're going to do the curly braces. And then you basically just set what you want those member variables to be equal to. It will call the base constructor first, and then it'll set up the initialization members for you. And that's it. So it's real easy. Instead of having a bunch of different constructor signatures, you can just have one that does the meat of your work and then just pass in the member variables that you want set. So it uh, we'll have a link up there. But, you know, for people who aren't aware of it, that will save you a lot of time in creating constructors just redundantly. Yeah, so uh, with that, <clears throat> I, have, I have two I'm going to mention, uh, both keeping in the theme of this episode. So we mentioned previously in the, in part one, uh, poor man's T SQL formatter. So I thought that that deserved to be mentioned as a tip of the week. So uh, if you are a fan of Notepad plus plus, poor man's T SQL formatter is a plugin that you could apply there. And as we mentioned, you could take your query from anywhere else, plug it in there, uh, format it, and it'll make it all nice and pretty for you. Obviously, you're not gonna be able to query it from there. But it's a, it's a nice way of uh, formatting that consistently if that's something that your OCD requires that you do. And without using an online tool so that you don't know if people are stealing your SQL. Yeah, you know, yeah, especially if you don't have the, uh, the bankroll to buy uh, the Redgate tools. <laughs> right, they're pricey. Um, so, so I felt that one deserved. But the other one I wanted to mention, too, is that if you aren't already using it, is the SQL Profiler tool that comes with uh, you know, SQL Management Studio, and uh, that's a great little tool you can run alongside your app if you're trying to um, uh, debug, especially for like a, a brownfield application. If you're just trying to trace it to see like well, how bad is this thing before I get started into it, right? And you can just kind of see what um, what that application is doing. Also, you know, there's a ton of different uses for it. You could see like, well, how bad did Entity uh, make that query, and you can see. Um, so it's a great little utility for actually being able to see the, the queries, uh, that are happening as they happen. Y you know, you can see it from, um, not just a statement point of view, but stored procedures that are getting called, things like that. So it's, it's a great tool. A quick tip on that is if you are using SQL profiler in a production environment, you probably don't want it to write to tables on that server because it is going to eat up a ton of I.O. So you'll want it to set up to write to your local file system for the uh, SQL trace. Yeah, I guess I should have mentioned that because I was really thinking that you would use this locally, not on a production uh, server. Well, you use it locally, but you might be pointing no, 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 to I your mean, production connect, server. I'm sorry, uh, connect to a... Pro uh, yeah. I, w I wasn't thinking that you would use it to connect to a production uh, yeah, right. database. Yeah, right. Database. Dude, why else does it exist? <laughs> How long have <laughs> you been in this industry and you've never seen this used on fraud? 
I'm not saying that people don't do it. I'm just saying like what I was thinking when I wrote it. Okay, so from his from his standpoint, he's just running code and seeing what comes out without having to trace through every step of the code. Oh yeah, me but, too. But but <laughs> if you ever do run into a problem where like you just can't reproduce it because you don't have the same level of transactions in a development environment, this is the tool that you use, right? Um, I mean, what else are you gonna do unless unless you have the bankroll again to get something like. Uh, Oh man, I can't even think of the 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 program SQL um, uh, Century. SQL Century is one. There's some other tools out there, but even then, Profiler will take it a step further, and you get to see everything. Yeah, I'm not saying that you couldn't. I'm just saying that you know, from a developer's point of view, <laughs> when I decided to mention this as the tip of the week, I was really intending it to be used from a development point of view in a development environment. Nice CYA. That's you know, if you want to connect this to your production system, that's at your own risk. Yeah, fair enough. So uh, so with that, we'll be putting all the links in the uh, show notes uh, that will be available at codingblocks.net slash episode 13. Subscribe to us on iTunes. No, no, Stitcher. no, no. Episode oh, I'm sorry, 14. 14. Yes, you're right. Yeah. Thank you for that. So www.codingblocks.net slash episode 14. Uh, subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, and more using your favorite podcast app. And be sure to give us reviews. We really appreciate those. Those go a long way to uh, helping new listeners find us. And us help people become better programmers, hopefully. Oh. Well, I wouldn't go that far. Okay. Well. <laughs> yeah, I just took that uh, SQL performance quiz. I'm not helping anybody on SQL. Oh, really? Did you take it? Yep. What, what? You don't want to change <laughs> um, I got five out of five, but it was hard, so. <laughs> All, right. All right. So, yeah. so like I was saying, if, if you could give us a review, you know, we would greatly appreciate it. Uh, uh, yeah, where are we at? So, yeah, uh, visit us at CodyBlocks.net, where you can find the show notes, examples, discussions, and more. Yeah, and send us your feedback, questions, and rants, and comments to comments at CodyBlocks.net. And uh, make sure you follow us on Twitter. All right. That's a wrap.